All right, so this is our first class on the out of four on the five aggregates. And I know that doesn't add up to have four classes on the five aggregates. So as you can guess, we're not doing one aggregate per class. Um, we'll be doing a different arrangement. Um, I'm Kim Allen, and I'm one of the teachers here. And I've been studying the suttas um, for a long time, like more than 10 years, with originally with Gil Fronstall and Shyla Catherine when I was living up on the peninsula. And since then, I've gone on to study with some monastics like uh, Bhikkhu Analyo and Bhikkhu Bodhi. And I have found in my own practice that there's something for me very resonant about these ancient teachings, which in some ways is a little bit mysterious to me because they're written in oddball language, as you'll find as we read them. Um, and they use terms that you have to kind of learn because they mean different things than we use them in English now, and some of the translations are a little funny. But somehow my mind wants to delve into these, and I find that they're, you know, they have like, like poetry has this ability. These are not just poetic, but they have that ability to speak at a different level. And so for me, the effort is worth it to get into the language and to really try to absorb what the teachings are saying. Uh, has actually affected the way my practice has flowed and in sometimes quite profound ways. So I feel um, like I want to try to share that with others in some way. There are many different ways to read the teachings. Uh, I'm not saying that the way that we do it here is the right way or the one way. Um, but I think that there are very many practice instructions buried in the suttas and that as we get our minds into what this la strange language is like, we will find that it's actually pointing toward very real things in our lives that transcended the fact that the Buddha was teaching 2,600 years ago halfway across the world. It's amazingly still relevant, which only gives me more respect and more appreciation for what an amazing discovery the Buddha made if he could speak across time and space in that way, very deep. So that's a little bit of background. Also, um, not all of you have seen the email yet, but. I gave a kind of an overview of the Pali Canon earlier this year, and I asked that people who were starting out in the Sutta classes uh, listen to that at some point. It's only about an hour and 45 minutes total, and it's only in 45 minutes of me talking, and the rest is actually group discussion about some suttas, so it's pretty interesting to listen to. You'll get the link if you haven't already. So we're starting on these aggregates. So I want to start with um, just an overview and you'll see as we go along in the class that it's some teaching, and there's also some meditation. We're going to do a guided meditation. And then there's also um, reading, because this was originally an oral tradition. And so we're actually, they were meant to be heard and spoken, these suttas. And so we're going to read them out loud as we talk about them. It's very participatory. So what are the aggregates. I mean, what a strange word. And I put it right there in the title so that I didn't try to disguise it, like, you know, ways that we identify or, you know, challenges with our body and our mind or things like that. So all of you are here because you weren't afraid of the word aggregate. Um, the Pali word for aggregate is khanda, the khandas. And at the time of the Buddha, this word khanda was actually a very common word. It means a heap or a pile. <laughs> you know, if you're if you're harvesting your wheat, you might make a conda of wheat stalks. And it was just, you know, you would just talk about that. So 
he used this word to refer to aspects of our physical and mental being. So that was then a little bit abrupt, maybe, that he um, used such a common word. Uh, the Sanskrit word which you'll hear sometimes is skanda. So kanda and skanda. This word uh, is two parts of speech simultaneously. So what does kanda really mean? It's, uh, I think that I'll explain why the word aggregate is a pretty good translation. So first of all, it's a noun, an aggregate, a collection of stuff that is made of other stuff, right? <laughs> I, would, I just saw somebody uh, earlier today who said that they had seen the flyer about this, and they said, when I saw the word aggregate, I thought gravel is an aggregate. <laughs> and it is, right? It's like, like rocks that have been stuck together into other little pieces of rock. <laughs> and so... An it's, it means that, a noun that means a collection of stuff that's made of other stuff. And then there's also a verb, to aggregate, which means to gather or pile stuff together. And it's meant to imply both of those. So it's both the product and the process of producing. And it's not an accident that those are tied together. So there's actually all kinds of cases where we do this in... Um, English, like we construct constructions, or we fabricate fabrications. Um, one of the aggregates in particular is all about that. We'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. So this is useful to know. And yeah, this is especially important in the case of volitional formations, which is one of the aggregates. Because those actually construct the condas. We'll talk about that later. So what are these various khandas. The first is form, or rupa. I always give the Pali, if I can, uh, for those who are interested. And if you're not, just blank out that word. You don't have to listen to it. So form, or rupa, which refers largely to the body um, as, you know, form, like forms, objects. But it also refers to external form. So things outside of us, your car, your house, etc. That's all part of the form world. Even other sense experiences like sound is part of form, for example. And then the second aggregate, I'm just going to list them first and then we'll talk in more detail as we go on. The second aggregate is feeling, feeling tone or Vedana. And this is like it is in the Buddhist teachings overall that this can this doesn't refer to feelings like emotions, but it refers to the um, the tone of experience as being either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And those are kind of the three options. Um, and that refers to really the the kind of gut level response that we have to something at our very visceral level, either. We, we think it's pleasant, we think it's not pleasant, or eh, somewhere in between, you know? Yeah, Heidi. What was the Pali word for Vedana? Vedana. Oh, Vedana. Yeah, Vedana. <coughs> yeah. So the feeling tone is kind of an interaction, actually, between the experience and our mind. It's, it's characteristic of our mind. Like we know it's sort of obvious that there are foods that some people think are pleasant and other people think the same food is unpleasant. So it's not inherent in the object, for sure. 
but it's related to the object. Um, it's more, though, about our mind, our mind's response to something. And then the third aggregate is perception, or sanya, S-A-N-N-A, with tildes over the ends, sanya. This is a very interesting one. I have to qualify this one also because in Western psychology, perception is used, and some of you may know um, a lot about perception if you've studied psychology. And I will say that the Buddhist idea of perception is um, a subset of the Western psychology idea of perception. Uh, in Buddhism, the perception really only refers to the recognition of an object, that first act where when I look at this, I know it's a pen. You know, something in my mind says pen or the equivalent, even if I don't, if you think in images or something. But there's a recognition. I know what this is. And it's based largely on memory. If I had never seen this, I might have other words. It's a long, longish blue stick, cylinder kind of thing. But I might not know the word. But I still recognize it. I still recognize that it has a shape and a color. So I'm still drawing on some kind of memory. So in order to identify anything in the world, we had to learn all of that. Um, what you really see with your eyes is edges where something light changes to something darker, and you see colors if you're not colorblind. That's what you see. But our mind very quickly, based on memory, based on what we've learned and experienced, sees mats, floor, people, so perception is a very subtle and quick and tricky function of the mind, absolutely necessary for navigating in the world, and problematic, <laughs> brings suffering, right? When we misperceive, uh, when we are locked into certain ways of seeing things and identifying things. So perception, and it's, it's really more that simple part. We'll move on to the more ideal ideation that we do after that in a moment. So another word for it is recognition or conceptualization. It's highly dependent on memory. It's the moment where we take something that is a raw experience and make it into a concept, a word. So the fourth aggregate is volitional formations, or sankhara. S-A-N-K-H-A-R-A, sankhara. Tan Jeff, uh, who's the translator of some of the suttas we read, uh, calls them fabrications. Just so that you'll know, not everybody says volitional formations. He calls it fabrications. Um, this is a big one. It's everything that the mind does volitionally. That's why it's called volitional formation. So when there's some intention, some um, action involved uh, in the mind, then we have a volitional formation. This includes intentions, emotions, some of our thoughts, any functions of mind that happen because we are intending something. So it also includes many of the wholesome factors that we develop through practice. Mindfulness is a sankhara. So is concentration. So is investigation. You know, so all, it's not that these, you know, fabricate sounds kind of like we're lying or something, but, um, you know, we also fabricate anger and you know, greed and other things that we don't want in our mind necessarily. Those are also things that we fabricate. All of these are volitionals. Big dukkha. 
<laughs> big dukkha. Because this is all the storytelling that we do. You know, when you get caught for 10 minutes, we just meditated for 10 minutes at the beginning. If you were lost for seven of them, you were probably doing a bunch of sankhara, <laughs> right? <laughs> so big dukkha and also big potential for liberation. You know, um, the sankharas are, we're going to construct mindfulness and concentration and the path during our practice. So um, it's a, a useful but challenging function of mind that we want on our side, not on the side of ignorance. And then the fifth aggregate is consciousness, vinyana, V-I-N-N-A-N-A, with tildes over those first two ends, vinyana. And in Buddhism, consciousness, again, you'll have to, if you know psychology, please modify slightly. Um, Consciousness is very simple. It's actually just the very simple process of knowing that we have an experience. We just know, like at this moment, um, you can know that you're knowing. You can know that you're hearing. Right now you're hearing, and if you just bring to mind that knowledge that you are hearing, that would be an aspect of consciousness. You're aware. Yeah. How is that different from mindfulness? It's simpler, I guess. Uh, mindfulness is actually not not just bare awareness. Uh, mindfulness is an act that includes um, some some degree of wisdom, yeah. usually as it's described. Some teachers will say it's, all teachers will say it's more than bare awareness, I think, although there's some fuzziness in that. Some will say it's exclusively wholesome and therefore has wisdom in it. Some will say it can be wholesome or unwholesome in terms of mindfulness. But either way, consciousness is actually, is very much barer than that. Could you spell that again? Vinyana, V-I-N-N-A-N-A. So we're not going to equate, you're not going to use awareness related to consciousness. I have a hard time um, trying to distinguish awareness, mindfulness, and consciousness. I'm sure consciousness is something very simple. Sometimes I would use awareness to mean consciousness, I have to admit. And sometimes I would use awareness to mean mindfulness. So I'll try to be more precise since we are talking about the aggregates in this class. Um, And the I don't think all these things have actually precise boundaries around them for the simple reason that the Buddha did not offer us a a worldview. He didn't offer us a philosophy with well-defined everything. He offered us ways of thinking about things. And so within these five aggregates, consciousness is the quality of mind that knows. And I'm not trying to sidestep you by saying that. Um, That's actually a fairly deep point to ask that question. So thank you for bringing it up. And I'll try to be as precise as I can. Just to give an example then of consciousness, there are said to be six different classes of consciousness. It's actually on that chart that we have. Uh, Eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose, tongue, body, and mind. So these are acts of knowing at each of the six sense doors. One more thing. Yeah. So the, would be uh, accurate to say that perception is the recognition of object. Yes, consciousness is basically the, is the recognition or the knowing of the experience. So that would be the difference. One is the object, the other one is experience. Um, this is a good point. I think the way I'd like to clarify what you're saying, because it's, imp- it's useful, is that 
there are kind of two things going on in what I would call experience. There's the well, there's what's happening, and there's our mind with what's happening, right? And so consciousness is on the side of the knowing mind, and it's um, independent in some way of the object, except for having the six different classes, depending which kind of object you're looking at. But it's, very, it's just that very simple recognition. And a lot of what we do in practice, or some of what we do, is we shift our ability Normally, we're 100% focused on objects. That's our world, you know, it's this and this and all the stuff. And some of what we do in practice, at some point, you have to turn around and look at what's knowing. You have to turn around and look at what is it that knows all of this. Um, That's an essential reflection to do in order that we can't identify with consciousness. We have to see that, too, as something that is just one more experience. And so it's what's on the non-object side of experience. I think that's a nice way to say what you're pointing at. It's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. There's another word not to get confusing, but I've heard this word interchange with consciousness is observer, although observer is not a solid thing, but is the thing observing? Yeah, so we I think observer creates a being in some ways. I know, ways. that's what I'm so, trying to say, it's not solid. Yeah, but. so, but the when you first learn mindfulness, uh, mm-hmm. you are told to create an observer, because mostly we're just stuck on experience, and right. we're just living in reactive mode, and so the first thing we do is we establish something that can look at experience. That's what we learn in Mindfulness 101, and it's very, very valuable. You know, that's actually critical to... Mm-hmm you know, disengage slightly from being so caught up in things. And then at some point, we need to be, we need to start asking questions about that observer. Mm-hmm. Who is that? It's, a, you know, did it get created? Yes, it did. <laughs> and what happens if it isn't there? You know, and so, um, this is your, you guys are jumping right into the deep end. Um, <laughs> this is about, this is about the mind. I mean, and that, this, Carlotta pointed out, you know, contemplation of the five aggregates is what leads to insight. So contemplation of the five aggregates, four of them are about the mind. And they're about how this thing works. How does this thing work that we got born into with no instruction manual? This is what happens when you start looking at how the mind works. And so um, the Buddha said this might be a useful model for you in figuring, in, in looking at all of that. So that'll actually that's a nice segue into what I wanted to say next, which is that why why these? The Buddha is not saying that this is ultimate absolute reality. You know, like there's carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, and these are real things, and there's form and feeling and perception. What he says is, if you look at all this the stuff that goes on in mind and body, this might be a useful way to divide it up. It's a pie. Let's divide it into these five pieces. Why is this useful? Because they represent ways that we tend to identify. These are the five most common things to identify with. And identification is big dukkha. And the Buddha's job, this is my theme word tonight apparently, Mm -hmm. the Buddha's job is to uh, help end suffering. That was his compassionate aim in teaching. Always. I teach suffering and the end of suffering. And so he really thought about, how can I teach beings, these poor suffering beings, how can I explain this to them so that they 
won't so that they'll understand and not have to bring themselves suffering anymore and he thought oh i know i'll make this model of the five aggregates which are the most common ways that people cling these five piles of experience remember this just means heap or pile so our experiences of these five piles of things and um, if we didn't identify with them so strongly we would suffer less so you will hear um, I'll just say that you will hear some teachers say that these five aggregates do represent complete experience. Uh, I don't think they even represent all of experience, actually. That's a, not every teacher will say that. Some teachers will say there are four well-defined aggregates, form, feeling, perception, and consciousness, and volitional formations is rest of world. It's everything that's not those four. I've actually heard that um, spoken in Dharma talks, and I believed it for a while until I realized that the Buddha was really talking about the ways that we identify. And um, it doesn't have to represent all of experience. And so I think it, I'll read a quote from Analio uh, about this. The early tradition simply uses the five aggregates as pointers to how we identify. It's a useful teaching to help free us. The five aggregates are not really meant to be a complete map of all experience. If we do that, as the later tradition does, then sankara ends up being rest of world. Everything is not form, feeling, perception, or consciousness. But in fact, the early tradition really meant for it to be clearly related to volition. If it becomes a catch-all, its power as a pointer toward identification is weakened. I think that's true. So let's, that's why I'm pretty clear about using volitional formations, even though it's a mouthful for the fourth aggregate. So we're going to try to stick with that. And so then this, you know, it follows naturally that this is not an assertion of absolute truth or absolute reality. It's a model. It's a helpful model to help us see our suffering and release it. So I just want to go over one more thing. I want to talk about, um, because this is a lot of talking, I know, Um, what does identification with each of the aggregates look like in practical terms? So let's actually get pragmatic about this. Um, Identification with the body, I think everybody can understand intuitively. This is our wanting to control it, wanting to look good. Anybody primp in front of the mirror in the morning? (laughs) You know, um, all the ways in which we're upset that our body is getting old or that it's sick or not working. represent little ways that we're clinging to having a healthy body, having a young body, where in fact the body is just, you know, it's, it's a heap. <laughs> it's a heap called form. Um, that's not to say that there isn't suffering that's naturally associated with the body. The Buddha had back pain. The Buddha got sick at the end of his life. I'm sure that wasn't pleasant for him. But, um, so, you know, it's not that we, we do have to deal with the body in a sense, but identification with it and really clinging to it being a certain way That's a lot of suffering, and we start to see that more and more as we get older, of course. So feeling tone, if we cling to that, which people do, cling to things being pleasant, unpleasant, or neither, uh, it, it turns into, this is good, this is bad, this needs to change. Um, setting up one's life to have only pleasure and no pain, which we all try to do at a subconscious level um, in some ways until we 
maybe until we start to change that. But uh, we easily cling to pleasantness or push away unpleasantness. And a lot of practice, especially um, the early phases of practice, are about learning to tolerate a wider range of Vedana, right? We start out, sometimes we come to practice with lots and lots of dukkha because we don't know that there's a, there's a way to be with, with pain or with physical pain or mental pain that's non-reactive. You know, it's no, we just never got, say, mindfulness instructions. And that's the huge relief that pe- people feel at the beginning, is that their, their range starts to widen of the, the degree of unpleasant Vedana that they can tolerate without freaking out. Um, this is certainly the case for me. I mean, I'm saying it a little bit casually, but I came to practice through big suffering that was more than I could tolerate. And when I learned the instructions and learned how to sit with pain, it was such a relief. I mean, it just changed my life. And so um, this is related to identification, partly with the body, but also with, with feeling tone more fundamentally. Identification with perception. Um, I want to tie this into our, the way that we cling to and get stuck on volitional formations, because these two really go around together. So what we what we pay attention to, so recognition, what we recognize and have some sense of, is highly influenced by volitional formations, which is how we ideate about things. Um, how we label and recognize things are actually strong habits that can take a while to see. So for example, um, it can be a big revelation that when we walk into a room, um, we may have a, a habit of seeing uh, only things, like we first scan the room for anything that might be dangerous to us. That's a habit of perception. When you come in, you could see all kinds of stuff in this room. There's some more things here than we could actually take in at our first glance in the room. But we, if we have a habit of filtering in a certain way, we will quickly scan the room. Do I see any people that look dangerous? Do I see any um, places in the room that I shouldn't go? Do I see activities happening that I don't want to be part of? There are people whose lives is, this is the whole filter on their lives. So this is part of perception and it's influenced by what? A volitional formation, some view that says, for example, the world is a dangerous place, and we're operating under that view. So these really go back and forth. Of course, the classic, I don't know if you guys, I've told this story so many times, I won't elaborate on it much, but there's this classic story now of people who were shown a video of people passing a basketball, right? And in the middle, of, they were told to look for one thing. They were told to look for the passes between the people in white shirts. So they're watching, watching people with white shirts, counting, okay, there was a white shirt, there was a white shirt passing the ball. And in the middle of this video, literally, right through the center of the circle of people that are passing the ball, a person in a gorilla suit walks through, waves their arms at the camera, and walks out. And after the video is shown, people are asked, did you see the gorilla? And a good fraction of them say, what gorilla? I didn't see a gorilla. I didn't see the gorilla. You didn't see the gorilla. That's right. <laughs> totally blew my mind. And so, you know, and they were, they were, because they were filtering based on what they were told to do. Um, and so you wonder, what is the back of my mind telling me to do as I walk through the world? And in fact, but the thing is also amazing is that people are so sure of that, that they would, like when the researchers showed them the film again, said, there's the gorilla, see it? They said, 
you're showing me a different film. <laughs> so this is, but you know, this is how entrenched our views get. It's like they would think that somebody was lying before they thought that they didn't see the gorilla. <laughs> so it's like, wow, okay. So this really is humbling. And um, I would like to know more about the things that I'm not seeing. I try to look for that and expand my awareness around that. And I know I still have work to do. So then volitional formations is a little bit bigger, but this is identification with um, views. So um, like I said before, the world is a dangerous place or people can't be trusted or sometimes people have um, positive views. People generally can be trusted. There are people who go through the world with that view. Um, and it's, these are often subtle. We don't see them operating. And so it's part of practice that we start to see the kind of operating modes that we're in. And we also get our view expanded as we talk with other practitioners and we realize, oh, not everybody sees things that way. Well, that's interesting. I thought this was just how things are. <laughs> I thought this was the best way, the only way to see things. So it can be very humbling also. We also identify easily with emotions or thoughts. You know, people who have a lot of anger may identify with it to, to the degree that they feel that it's important to them to have that. This is my protection. I walk around with this, and if I didn't have it, it, I would be unsafe. And what they really mean is, if I didn't have it, I wouldn't know who I was, you know, because I identify with it. It's part of me. And so this, this actually, these start to go very deep, actually, into who we think we are. Um, and we worry that we'll become nobody, or that we'll just become somebody else's pawn if we let go of the things that we hold most deeply. And it's not that through practice you're going to become nobody, or nothing, or a totally blonde, no personality, or that you're just going to be used by other people. But what we're talking about is letting go, not, not getting rid of, so, but letting go so that we hold more lightly all of these ways of seeing. You know, we are the product of our history and our experiences, and we're not asked to deny those, but we are asked to hold them lightly enough that they're not a source of suffering for us. Remember, that's the aim not to suffer for these things that we grasp onto. Step by step. So if you have something that you are sure you can't let go of, then don't. <laughs> don't. You only have to let go of the things that you can and the things that are right at the surface causing you the most suffering right now. Step by step, it's a process. And then identification with consciousness. So this is what Kara brought up with the observer. There, this is a subtle identification. You know, you say, I don't identify with the fact that I'm a knower. But we do when we do meditation practice. Um, if you've practiced meditation for a long time, it's very um, tempting to see yourself as the one who's observing all of this. And people use this language, you know, oh, I observed my body, I observed my emotions, I observed a thought arising and then vanishing. It's fine, you don't need to, like, trip up your language and try to not use I in that sentence. But when you speak that way, you are identifying. At that moment, I is the observer. I watched my mind. What does that even mean, right? It means you're putting yourself in the place of the observer, which is fine. But at some point, we also have to not no longer be the observer. The observer also arises and passes. It's, it too is impermanent. Um, people will identify sometimes in other traditions will say that there is a universal constant consciousness. The Buddha did not teach that. 
um, and did not support that view because it's an identification with something still. So this is subtle. It's often, it just becomes a barrier, usually long, long time meditators. Are there any questions on this kind of overview so far? Because then I thought we would do a little guided meditation on these. perception or volitional formations yeah mm-hmm. you know, to, yeah and, uh, and that's probably that's a good example that's why I put in that qualifier that we're not getting rid of or denying or something but if we're holding even our nationality our familial ties our culture in a way that is um, grasping it will lead to suffering if we identify so strongly with any of those things. The, the way it will bring suffering is that it will eventually come into, it could come into conflict with those who have another identification, right? And so this isn't to say that you shouldn't acknowledge who you are or live in alignment with who you are in some way, but the trick, the trick is to do that in a way that doesn't bring suffering to you. Yeah. So, um, how are we doing in terms of our body, speaking of rupa? Um, would you like to take a, a stretch break for a moment and then, okay, why don't you do that? Okay, so finding a posture that's comfortable and also upright. So one where you can be alert and also relaxed. If you're comfortable doing so, you can close your eyes. Maybe take a couple of long, slow, deep breaths. Filling the lungs and then on the exhale, just allowing the body to relax. Feeling the place where you're sitting, so the seat against the chair or the cushion, legs or feet against the floor.
Just tuning in to the whatever body sensations feel prominent. Often the breath is a simple sensation to connect with. Or the feeling of the body sitting, that general shape of the upright body and the contact points. This is an experience of form. The body, the physicality of our world. Our world includes physical experiences. The sound of my voice is also part of form. Just softening the mind and allowing it to rest in the experience of form, however that's appearing for you right now. Experiences that are physical have a certain feel to them, a certain sense to them. They're characterized by having the qualities of the four elements, meaning that they have some solidity to them, like the earth element. They may have a feeling of liquidity or cohesion. It's aggregated, an aggregated feeling. So that's the water element, liquidity and cohesion. Sometimes especially able to feel it in the mouth. A feeling of temperature. It's warm, it's cool. Some parts are warm, some parts are cool. This is the fire element. And feelings of motion. So the movement of the breath through the body or the feeling of any energy that you can tune into in the body. Those kind of ripples of pulses or throbbing feelings that we get 
the buzz of energy in the body, these kinds of motions, or the air element. As we feel the shifts and changes of the form, khanda, we may have the sense that we're not entirely in control of it. You don't know what word I'm going to say next, or what body sensation will come next. It's just form. experience of form. As we continue to sit with our experience, we can tune into the feeling tone of experience, starting with the feeling tone associated with form. You may have experiences going on in your body that are pleasant. A sense of softness or relaxation somewhere in the body. Maybe the chair is soft. Or our belly is comfortably fed. Or we're just the right temperature. Maybe other experiences that are unpleasant. Me is getting a little cranky. Or 
should have had a drink of water at the break. I'm a little thirsty. Or that tension in the back of my neck since I didn't sleep right on it last night. And a lot of experiences in the body are pretty neutral also. Often the touch of clothing on the skin is pretty neutral sensation. So there's this aspect also of our experience. Pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. As we notice feeling tone, we may in some way become aware that it's kind of a bridge. There is an object, physical object often, or could be an emotion, and then there's the mind's response to it. And the feeling tone is somehow the bridge, that point of contact experience in the mind. of the mind to become a little stronger. That's right, there's this mind here also. It too can actually be observed. And as I sit with experience, the mind is tracking it. It knows what's going on. When I feel that little burning twinge at the base of the spine, my mind knows, oh, that's my back.
you're not totally confused about what's happening in your experience because you have some flow of perception going on that links what's coming in with your memory. You know pretty much what your body feels like. So you perceive, yes, that's right. That's what my butt on the chair feels like. I felt it before. See if you can look at this function of the mind that cognizes, conceptualizes experience into something it recognizes. say, notice the sensations in your right hand. Boom. Your mind immediately knew what that meant and could link some sensations to that word, right hand. Your perception is working. Quickly, did you identify that that was a little glitch in the microphone? Very quickly, the mind orients. What's that sound? If you can't identify it, it will come into the center of attention until you can. That's perception, that's the function of perception. background instruction going on somewhere in your mind you know I am meditating I'm not riding a bike I'm supposed to be meditating 
There is somewhere a volition in your mind to sit here. Pam said to sit upright and also relaxed. Am I still doing that? These are the volitional formations, the intentional ways that we are interacting with our world. Habits of thought and emotion. The whole world of story. This too we can observe in operation. Finally, the observer itself. We're good mindfulness students. We know to watch what's happening. But what about the watcher? Who watches the watcher? Is it possible to know that you are knowing? interesting sense to develop in the mind, to know that you know. It doesn't have to be a big effort. Just bring into awareness that at this moment you know. Reflect for a moment on what a large part of our world these five aggregates are. How much of daily experience is one or the other of those? It's a lot.
Good, so I hope that gave some flavor of these different things. We'll have a chance to explore them a bit more and practice over the week. Um, but now I want to turn and look at the suttas. This was a lot of introduction, but... Um, so in general, I ask that people bring the suttas on their own, and I know that some of you got this a little bit late. So does anybody need a copy? I have a few tonight. You do. Jace, do you need a copy also? I've got it, okay. Could you pass those behind you? Oh, and this one too. So we'll look first at this um, excerpt from SN 56.11, which is the, by the way, that's said to be the very first sermon that the Buddha preached. And the Dhammachaka Pavatana Sutta, the turning of the wheel of the Dharma. And would somebody please read that little passage? Can I get a copy of that one? Yes. I brought everything else. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. You have to suffer with our toner going out, so there's have to be creative on reading some of the words. Getting a replacement soon. Oh, yes, we definitely need a replacement. Oh, good. I gave that to the right person. <laughs> Treasurer. <laughs> okay. Um, so who would like to read this uh, short passage? Okay. Oh, okay. Sarah, first You'll do the next one, Heidi. Sarah. Novice monks, practitioners, is the noble truth of dukkha. Birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, death is dukkha. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair are dukkha. Association with the unbeloved is dukkha. Separation from the loved is dukkha. Not getting what is wanted is dukkha. In short, Five clinging aggregates are dukkha. Thank you. So that's pretty direct. Um, do people generally know what dukkha is? So that means suffering or unsatisfactoriness. It's not an easy word to translate. I'm saying this mostly for the newer folks. So this is the first noble truth. It points toward <laughs> what is difficult for us in life. Where do we struggle? Why do we struggle? I don't think anybody doubts that these things are indeed dukkha. <laughs> Sorrow, lamentation, pain, birth, death, getting what you don't want, not getting what you want, <laughs> getting stuck with people you don't like, you know, getting separated from people that you like. And then this, what I'm pointing to, of course, is this last line. In short, <laughs> so if I had to summarize that, <laughs> the Buddha says, the five clinging aggregates are dukkha. So the five aggregates, that's what we just talked about. But this has this qualification, the clinging aggregates. Sometimes it's written as the five aggregates subject to clinging, something like that. And so you could read this and say, well, that's pretty depressing. It's like everything, <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is life. <laughs> and some people will say life is suffering is the translation of the first noble truth, but it's not actually true. Um, as is evidenced by the later noble truths. That's not a good translation. So he's, um, but what he's saying is that when we cling, the clinging aggregates, the part where we cling to these things, that's what brings on the dukkha. 
uh, the Buddha still had a body, even after he was enlightened. As I noted, he still had issues with his body, he still had to eat every day, he still had to shit every day, you know. It still was functioning, but um, he had given up clinging to it, and so he was able to just go with that as the way the body is. Um, and then, similarly in his mind, he was accepting of his death and um, the uh, flow of his experience as it was. He didn't have complete control. People came up and said things to him that he wasn't able to control and they weren't always pleasant. Some people came and insulted him, but he wasn't clinging also to uh, those kinds of experiences and so his mind just let go. So this is our task. Um, is to learn how to let go of these things. I want to mention something about the word dukkha, and it's relevant for this also, is that um, dukkha in Pali is actually not, we translate it as suffering, like a noun. It's not a noun in Pali. It's actually an adjective. And so a better word is maybe not satisfactory, something like that. So these things are not satisfactory. I know somebody who likes the word dukish <laughs> instead of dukkha, because dukkha sounds like a noun, but it's an adjective. It means dukish, <laughs> means not satisfactory. And so if you, if you read instead, in brief, the five aggregates subject to clinging are not satisfactory, that sounds a little milder and also a little more reasonable. It's like, it's, yeah, it's true. It's not that satisfactory to um, not get what I want. That's not satisfactory, but I don't have to suffer for it. It just wasn't satisfactory. That, I think, is more doable. It sounds a little, little more agreeable. And so then, though, we can also conclude that studying these is very important. As you read in that quote, I should have given that as homework initially, <laughs> is that studying the aggregates is the way to insight, because the task for the first noble truth is that dukkha should be understood. Dukishness should be understood. <laughs> How is it that things are not satisfactory? What does that mean? Um, and so we better look at these five aggregates. If these things are the things that are not satisfactory, I want to know about that um, because that's how I'm going to be able to let go. Did you have? Yeah, I, yeah. I, that's really refreshing. I've never heard that uh, that adjective that it was an adjective. <coughs> Nouns and adjectives get a little blurred in Pali. It doesn't yeah, have exactly the same. Right. Yeah. Saying that it, it, it just means not satisfactory. What satisfactory means is that leading to contentment. That it's you know, it implies that there is a solution to it. And there is a solution. We could find something that was more satisfactory. Exactly. So we keep searching. So that's why we're searching because we're not satisfied. Yeah. With this. So I, I really like that. Good. Yeah, most people show up at, in meditation eventually because they've realized at some point, at some level, something is not being satisfied. We may, not arti we may articulate that in many different ways. I actually really like to honor and respect all the different ways that people say that. But basically, what I hear underneath is this isn't satisfactory, and so I'm looking for something. And the, um, you know, the implication and if you, is that if you follow it all the way, you'll find Nibbana, which is what is satisfactory, if you will. It's without dukkha, without any unsatisfactoriness. And so that's what we're looking for, but we don't know what that is. Uh, and so we have to learn. We have to learn along the way.
And a lot of what we've learned is that this thing that we said, well, okay, my life isn't satisfactory as it is. I know. I'll become a monastic. Well, okay. Um, that was okay for a while, but maybe you'll stay a monastic, but you'll realize that just being a monastic isn't quite fully satisfactory yet. Okay, more practice. You know, okay, maybe if I, and so, you know, we keep doing that. And we eventually find things that are more and more wholesome. You know, we start realizing it wasn't satisfactory to be just out in the world, like just working for myself, you know, working for, to, to make selfishly, trying to make myself happy. That didn't work. So what if I were to, you know, and so we start expanding, we try different things. We learn that things like generosity and kindness are much more satisfactory. And then we learn, but then we learn that those are conditional and we, it's hard to do that all the time. So we have to let go of some of our miserliness in order to be more generous. And then eventually we learn really great things like concentration. Oh, you know, that's really good because all the hindrances are gone at that point. That's really satisfactory, but not completely because I can't, I can't be concentrated all the time. I still have to pee and sleep and eat. And so it's like, okay, so then... The idea is that we get driven by things. If we're actually driven by a high enough standard, standard has to be high, we will eventually find Nibbana. If we, let, if we decide we're satisfied with something less than that, well, that's what we'll get. So we're encouraged to continue having a high standard. So, you know, there's something to be said for the aversive mind, right? If you take it all the way. <laughs> okay. Um, the, the green mind works, too. You just look for more and more satisfaction. It'll, it'll work also. <laughs> Don't worry. I'm just favoring the aversive because that's my tendency. Okay. So we conclude that suffering is important to study or dukishness. So the good news is that clinging this thing that's so, that's the second noble truth, that's why we're not satisfied, is because we're clinging to something. Clinging is part of the aggregates. This is the good news. Clinging is volitional. We don't think it is necessarily, but clinging is a volitional formation. Um, Tanha, well that's thirst, or clinging, upadana. And so, it's created, therefore it can be ended. A lot of people don't see the good side of looking at um, the aggregates or looking at all this clinging, but clinging is something that we're doing at some level. We don't necessarily like to think that because we feel like we're implicated, but don't worry, you're not personally implicated because you're not, you know, you didn't, it's in, the, in the root, you didn't want to hurt yourself. You just, didn't, you just can't see it. That's why it's called ignorance. Um, it doesn't mean that you're stupid. It means we're ignoring something. We're not seeing something. And so that's why practice is about seeing more and more. And eventually we see the place where we're gripping or where we're um, sticking ourselves with the knife or something, and then we can pull that out and not be doing that. Um, okay. So then the Buddha offered us a number of interesting ways to connect with these aggregates, because they are a little abstract, I have to admit. So he said, well, how could you think about them? How could you start to experience these aggregates? And what would be a good way to think about them? And that's the sutta that we're going to look at, the um, Fena sutta, which means a lump of foam. Actually, I think I'll just get up.
So, Heidi, would you like to start reading this one? I, I have it, I'm sorry. Um, okay. That's okay. So, um, on one occasion, the Blessed One was staying among the uh, Ayoja on the banks of the Ganges River. There he addressed a monk. Suppose that a large blob of foam were floating down the Ganges River, and a man with good eyesight were to see it, observe it, and appropriately examine it. To him, seeing it, observing it, and appropriately examining it, it would appear empty, void, without substance. Well, what substance would there be in a glob of foam? In this same way, a monk sees, observes, and appropriately examines any form that is past, future, or present, internal or external, latent or subtle, common or sublime, far or near. To him, seeing it, observing it, and appropriately examining it, it would appear empty, void, without substance. Well, what substance would there be in form? Wonderful. Thank you. So form, all of the physicality of the world, is compared to a lump of foam floating down the river. It's a powerful image. And then, um, and then he, he, he makes sure that we really understand that he, he doesn't mean just like some kinds of form. He says, you know, whatever kind there is, past, future, or present, so we've got all the times, internal or external, gross or subtle, what was that one, blatant or sublime? Blatant or subtle. This one says inferior common or superior, or common or sublime, far or near. Um, if you look at it carefully, it is seen to be insubstantial in some way. How does that feel to hear that? Maggie? I find that the hardest one to see is insubstantial because it's form. Right. It's rupa. It's it's stuff. Stuff. <laughs> it's it's the altar. It's you right. sitting there. It's the bell. It's you know, that's the one that I the word insubstantial bothers me. But I think there probably are other ways of conceiving of it that would make it perfectly sensible. I think it's a little bit meant to challenge us because mm-hmm. we think it's so solid. Also, you've only referred to one of the sense doors, and it's the hardest one to see with wisdom, which is seeing. Uh, For the most part, the objects that we interact with look relatively permanent. Um, Not all of them, obviously. But, you know, like you said, the altar and the people and the books and all that looks pretty substantial. But what about other aspects of form, such as sound? Mm -hmm. Sound is not very substantial. And I don't think of it, I think of it very easily as something that's conditioned. You know, it only happens when someone is speaking or there's sound waves or whatever it is, it arises and passes quite obviously in my experience. And so I don't think of that one as solid. So, and, you know, tastes only happen when I put the food in my mouth and so forth. And so they're, um, yeah. Okay. Did you have a comment to add in the middle of this? Because I wasn't, okay. I was just saying, I mean, that quantum physics. Right. That's another aspect. It's like, Objects are not solid. They they look solid. They feel solid, but they're mostly space. They are. It's true. Um, you know, electrons and circling protons. There's mostly nothing there, 
And now, of course, that's a concept in the, you know. And so I think we're, <laughs> and we're also challenged, like if we're feeling knee pain at this moment, our body feels pretty darn solid, you know. It's like, it doesn't feel like a light lump of foam. It feels like, you know, I've got that back pain going on. But I think we're challenged to um, look at that a little more carefully. Like a classic instruction for people who are working with pain in meditation, which is about 100% of people as far as I've seen, um, is to look more carefully at an experience that we call pain. And so uh, sitting in meditation, we might think, oh, there's a solid wall of pain in my knee. But if I actually focus in on it and put my attention there with some appropriate investigation, um, I start to see, oh, it's actually all the pain is coming from like a little tiny cubic millimeter of space. You know, it's actually very small and it's not solid. It's like these flashes on and off. It's not really quite uh, just substantial through time. And so it's not that pain goes away when that happens. That doesn't like magically cure us to have that insight. But it does kind of take away the oomph to it in some sense. And so there are some experiences that are much harder to penetrate than others, like solid objects out in the world. But within the body, we can see that bodily experience is not as solid as we thought. I think that's what he's trying to have us see, yes. I know the word solid. Uh, probably for me, what works better is the word permanent. Permanent, okay. Right, because if you tell me that the bell is not solid, well, I see it's solid, but I can see that the bell is not permanent. Because in some time from now, if I live another 500 years, that bell will not be there. Anymore. Probably not. Yeah, yeah. Really disintegrated. Something right? so will have changed it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that can be a good way to start entering into this kind of wisdom. Yeah. Not permanent or not constant is another way people say it. Did I see your hand, Brad, earlier? No. Okay. Um, okay. Let's go on to feeling then. Who would like to read the section on feeling? Kara? Okay. Yeah. Suppose bhikkhus that in the autumn when it is raining and big raindrops are falling, a water bubble arises and bursts on the surface of the water. A man with good sight would inspect it, ponder it, and carefully investigate it, and it would appear to him to be void, hollow, insubstantial. But what substance could there be in a water bubble? See, or so too, bhikkhus, whatever kind of feeling there is, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, a bhikkhu inspects it, ponders it, and carefully investigates it, and it would appear to him to be void, hollow, insubstantial. But what substance could there be in feeling? Yeah, so feeling is like a bubble on water. Mm -hmm. Um, especially when it's raining, we know bubbles don't last very long. Um, oh, and just as a uh, sort of a side note for those who haven't done much of this before, um, a bhikkhu is a monk, um, and that's the word for monk. And when we're reading now as modern lay people, in your mind you can substitute the word practitioner, because what he meant by saying monk was people who are seriously practicing meditation. <laughs> Those would be monks back then. The way people didn't meditate much in that time. And so, you know, we, we aren't literally monastics, but we're learning the same teachings. Um, 
And also you see here, again, for those who don't know as much or for, for review, is that we have a repetition, right? It's the same stuff, but just the image has changed. The words are otherwise the same, and they sound a little repetitive even. And sometimes people can say, okay, yeah, blah, 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 you know, I, uh, I don't want to read all this again. And it's true that there are times when it's efficient to read a sutta by kind of skipping over the repeated parts and just noticing, oh, okay, it's just the image changing, it's just the aggregate changing each paragraph. Um, but I think there's, there's two reasons that this is written out. One is that, first of all, this was an oral tradition, so we remember that if there's re these repeated passages, it makes it easier to memorize. <laughs> you know, you're going to memorize five of them, and they all have this chunk that goes, it gets repeated. And secondly, I think this repeated because it's important. <laughs> you know, the Buddha um, sometimes says things again and again and again because, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but my mind's pretty slow. I have to keep hearing stuff again and again and again. I love hearing the teachings again and again. And so I read these and I think, right, I just let it wash over my experience. And still, you know, still, like if I fall for permanence, I fall for uh, selfhood. Etc. So my mind needs to keep hearing these things. So that's partly why we do this also. So feeling as a bubble, it's interesting. And it's true that during the meditation, I don't know how it was for you, but I find feeling tone is a pretty quick and subtle experience. Um, we can grab onto it and turn it into, oh, that really hurts, that's really unpleasant. Mm -hmm. But actually, pleasant and unpleasant flicker really fast also. Um, as attention moves around and uh, as things change. Yeah, Kara. It makes more sense. I was, I was trying to, in my mind, foam is made out of many bubbles, but when you said bubble, the bubble can burst. It's quick, it's fast, and mm -hmm. foam can actually sit on there for a little while. Yeah, so it it's more substantial that. than a bubble, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Bubbles of feeling tone. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, who would like to read the one for perception? Okay. Thanks, Jason. <clears throat> now suppose that in the last month of the hot season, a mirage was shimmering, and a man with good eyesight were to see it, observe it, and appropriately examine it. To him, seeing it, observing it, and appropriately examining it, it would appear empty, void, without substance. For what substance would there be in a mirage? In the same way, a monk sees, observes, and appropriately examines any perception that is past, future, or present, internal or external, blatant or sub subtle, common or sublime, far or near. To him, seeing it, observing it, and appropriately examining it, it would appear empty, void, without substance. For what substance would there be in perception? Yeah, so perception is likened to a mirage. That's pretty interesting, mm -hmm. because a, a mirage is kind of a trick of uh, the conditions, basically. Um, I like the, the way it's conditional, because we're so sure that what we're seeing is really as it is. <laughs> but our recognition is completely conditioned by things, uh, things prior. And one thing we start to see in meditation, if you've done it for a while, is you start to encounter things that aren't as clear what they are mm -hmm. in the mind. You know, we start seeing things 
And sometimes people get scared about that, where they'll start to have perceptions that don't feel right to them in meditation. For example, it's not that uncommon in the beginning stages of concentration for the body to start feeling like it's very large, for example, or very small, um, or the boundaries of it go away. It's like we don't feel that there's any um, edge to the body exactly. Where is it? Even though it's clear when we see with seeing. So um, we start to see that perception is something that's conditioned. And that's one thing that we, you know, we start seeing that it's impermanent or inconstant. It's not just one thing. We're going to look into this more as things go along, but I think the mirage image is pretty good. It also points to perception as something that's a reflection, because a mirage happens because there's light, um, and it's what it's light and heat, I guess, um, trigger something that looks like an image. And so it's... It's somehow reflected. It's somehow um, not a direct image that we're seeing. And so if you've observed how perception works in your mind, which is not easy to see necessarily, but it's a basically a matching process. This is why I tried to describe it, is that you, you get input, and then somewhere from memory, perception is a very clever function, because it, it has access to all of your memories. Wow. <laughs> And it pulls up something that looks like it's a pretty good match. And it matches it against it, says, yep, hand. That one matches. You know, you know, pick up something, and it says, oh, pen. You know, that's, that's the best match. And um, so there's this, this sort of actual object or experience coming in, and then something, uh, an, an image being made in the mind. And that's exactly what a mirage is, too, is we have conditions and then an image forms in the mind and we think, oh, there's water or oh, there's an oasis or whatever it is. So this is actually quite accurate for how the mind works. And it's fine if it's working. And if it makes a mistake, we can really get off. And it's famous for making mistakes. Okay, who would like to read the one for volitional formations? Sarah. Um, suppose, Bhikkhus, that a man needing heartwood, seeking heartwood, wandering in search of heartwood, would take a sharp axe and enter a forest. There he would see the trunk of a large plantain tree, straight, fresh, without a fruit bud core. He would cut it down at the root, cut off the crown, and unroll the coil. As he unrolls the coil, he would not find even softwood, let alone hardwood. A man with good sight would inspect it, ponder it, and carefully investigate it, and it would appear to him to be void, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in the trunk of a plantain tree? So too, bhikkhus, whatever kind of volitional formations there are, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, the bhikkhu inspects them, ponders them, and carefully investigates them. As he investigates them, they appear to him to be void, hollow, and substantial. 
For what substance could there be in volitional formations? Yeah. This one really interested me. When oh. I read it, I was like, what? What is that? that oh. Makes sense. So I looked it up. You looked up how plantains and <laughs> yeah. banana trees are. And my brother was there, and he's a biologist, so he said, oh, yeah, pseudostem, blah, blah. It's a type of grass, basically, and it rolls around itself. So it looks like a tree. It's not a tree. Yep. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's like a grass stem that's rolled around itself. Very accurate description. Banana. It's the same thing with a banana. Yeah, is that there's no core to it, and if you start kind of removing the outer parts, it's it just falls apart, and there's nothing in the center. Very, it's very interesting. Yeah, something like that. Or bamboo. Well, bamboo is hollow. Well, there's nothing in the middle. Well, there's nothing in the middle. That's true. It is. That's right. So it's grass-like objects. And so what might this have to do with volitional formations? Well, there's no permanent substance in them. Right. They are the creations of our mind. Of our mind. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing there. There's no there there, as they say. And this can feel very... Um, and this is again meant to challenge us because there are things where, of course, we'll say, oh, well, of course, that's true, you know, I'm not so attached to that particular way of thinking, you know, whatever. But there are things that feel very, very solid to us, things that we're really identified with, feel like, no, it can't be that there's no substance to this. I really am an angry person. I really am this or that. Um, but if you were to really look carefully, feel all the way in, you would find, well, actually, there's no, um, there's no solid heartworm in there. Very interesting. All these things are conditional. It doesn't say they don't exist, but the, they're only in place because conditions are in place, and we're going to talk about this. I think we'll talk about this with some other ones um, in some other classes. So. This is interesting, and again, meant to help us contemplate. Thanks for the image. Yeah. Okay, um, and then consciousness. Wow. Now, suppose that a magician or a magician's apprentice were to display a magic trick at a major intersection, and a man with good eyesight were to see it, observe it and, appro and appropriately examine it. To him, seeing it, observing it, and appropriately examining it, it would appear empty, void, without substance. But what substance would there be in a magic trick? In the same way a monk sees, observes, and appropriately examines any consciousness that is past, future, or present, internal or external, blatant or subtle, common or sublime, far or near, to him, seeing it, observing it, and appropriately examining it, it would appear empty, void, without substance. For what substance would there be in consciousness? Yeah, thank you. <coughs> For the benefit of those on listening to the recording, we have two different translations being read here. Each translation would be consistent from paragraph to paragraph. Um, yeah, these luckily these two translations are very similar, so there's not much to say in terms of interpretation going on there. Um, 
So this is interesting too, is that consciousness is a, a trick, a magic trick or a magical illusion, is what it says in Bhikkhu Bodhi's version. And that is quite interesting to ponder. Um, yeah, maybe I'll leave it <laughs> to uh, consider to what degree there's a sort of a something being conjured up, basically, in consciousness. Any comments on that, or in, on any of the images? Yeah. That one seems a little more easy for me to understand. How do you see it? Um, well, just by looking at different uh, societies, you know, different value systems that are developed. Um, different groups of people have really different uh, consciousness about how their world is or how it should be. Okay, if you get into how it should be, that's more of volitional formation. Um, yeah, well, how it is. How, what's acceptable, what's, what the value is. Yeah. yeah, I think I would still put values into the fourth aggregate. <laughs> was that yes or no? <laughs> Lights flickering No, that's again. the electrical system. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, um, so this is the knowing, the knowing function of the mind. We can get a little bit of a clue by looking at that um, chart that Bhikkhu Bodhi, um, from the Bhikkhu Bodhi um, book that has the five aggregates and then it says what they are. Um, four great elements, six classes of this and that. And then the under condition, we're not going to talk about this too much, but you know, what is the condition that brings those about? For consciousness, the condition, interestingly, is name and form, mm -hmm. which is... Um, form being the physicality, and name uh, refers, it's not all of the mind, it refers to particular functions of the mind. Um, I think it's uh, feeling, perception, intention, attention, and contact. I'm never sure why contact is part of the mind, but that's technically what name means in the early Buddhism. Later uh, commentary traditions has a different definition for it. But essentially it says that consciousness is dependent on body and mind. So having a body and the mind somehow conjures up awareness of it. And if you look, it doesn't say it here, but the condition for name and form is consciousness. <laughs> so is, they, is consciousness. Oh. So they go back and forth. Um, they coexist. They're mutually dependent. Um, that gets very deep. I don't think we're going to explain that in words tonight. But it's worth pondering that this mind and its knowing function is somehow a mutually dependent construction, the whole thing. Mm. Wow, this goes deep quickly. So um, we're not going to read the whole verse at the end, but we will read this last section that points toward what happens when the five aggregates are understood. Who would like to read that next paragraph, seeing thus? Yeah, Sharon. Seeing thus, the instructed noble disciple experiences revulsion towards form, revulsion towards feeling, revulsion towards perception, Revulsion towards volitional formations, 
revulsion towards conflict. Experiencing revulsion, he becomes dispassionate. Through dispassion, his mind is liberated. When it is liberated, there comes the knowledge. It's liberated. He understands. Destroyed at birth, the holy life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. There is no more for this state of being. Yeah. Thank you for that. I want to first say, um, I'm glad that we read this one so that I can highlight the word revulsion, <laughs> which um, I want you to know that um, Bhikkhu Bodhi, who was the translator of that word, um, has retracted that <laughs> as he doesn't like that, that translation anymore. You'll see that Tanjeff uses disenchanted, if you have that one, and that's now what Bhikkhu Bodhi uses. What he had before, it's a very, it's not a good translation, actually. It's just not a good translation um, for that particular function of mind. Because it, it sounds aversive, which would not be wholesome. And the point, of course, is also is not that we're getting rid of the world. Um, but disenchantment actually fits very well with all these images of magic and mirages and ways in which the mind has been enchanted into seeing things. And we think of disenchantment, if you just look at that, it's a negative word in our society. But what about enchantment? Like if you've been enchanted by the evil prince, you know, or something, and you're, you're under a spell, basically, of not seeing things as they are, then the moment of disenchantment is where the spell breaks and you see thing, you see reality, uh, or you see things accurately is a better way to say it. So I'm sorry about the word revulsion, but now that we've said it, we can just substitute every time we happen to see it in the book, if you, if you're, or in any translation, you can substitute disenchantment. It's really much more uh, accurate. Yeah, Carlotta. I'm going to sound pretty, I don't know, pretty opposed to this whole thing, I guess. But oh, good. I'm not here to oppose anything because I'm here to run. Objections but, are welcome. But truly, you know, all of this sound like, I, like we need to convert like zombies, like zombies. I mean, we, we are not supposed to feel anything, to believe anything, to, to you know, to, 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 to well, I mean, I, yeah, it's, it's, it's sound like a, it uh, like a zombie here. It's like a, is that is that a is that a response to the word dispassion? Yeah, yeah. So if you didn't have any like, passion, uh, you know, of course, I don't believe what I see. I don't trust what I what I hear. I don't trust my smell. I don't trust my taste. So it's like, okay, you don't trust. I hope it. at some point we get to. Oh, okay. So. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I hear what you're saying. These words are, are triggers for Westerners sometimes. And they, um, they definitely take some contemplation. What I would say about the dispassion and the sense of not, um, you know, just becoming a zombie and becoming like equanimity is just like um, indifference and unfeeling. I guess what I would say to that is consider people you know or have seen on video or read about um, who are considered very advanced practitioners. So, you know, the Dalai Lama, for example, uh, or, you know, other well-known spiritual teachers, Pima Chodron, for example, 
do you find these people to be cold, dispassionate, flat, completely, you know, I don't. I find that, you know, people become warm, open, very able to express their emotions um, with quite a lot of love and compassion for life and the ups and downs, and but a keen understanding, you know. Um, you're not going to get away with something with them because they're going to say, no, nope, you're not seeing that accurately, right? Mm-hmm. That's one of the blessings of spiritual teachers is that they, they um, call you out on your uh, misunderstandings. It's one of their gifts. And so I take this then as another one of those things to, to work with in my practice. So what does this passion really mean? It's another word that's not well translated in that Passion, actually in English, like about 150 years ago, uh, when these were first discovered by Westerners, um, passion meant suffering, like the passion of Christ. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it was all about suffering, and it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't passion like you love something and it's vibrant. It was passion like it's pulling on your heart, <laughs> you know? And so um, that was what was meant by that sense. And so dispassion is when that fire cools. And we can actually be with things in a simple way, in a real way. I also want to address what you said about not trusting. Um, Did you mean that you don't trust them now, or that after disenchantment you wouldn't trust them? That after disenchantment. Oh, no, it's the other way around. (laughs) (laughs) The sense is that right now we're we're subject to illusions, we're seeing mirages. Um, we're uh, mistaking foam for things that are important, and that um, you know, none of this is meant to insult us. Like you're stupid. It's just um, it's meant to suggest that this could be pointing toward why our life is unsatisfactory <laughs> in certain ways. Not that it's completely unsatisfactory. The human realm is definitely not the worst. Um, the human realm is considered okay. Is that an accurate description? It's like it's not horrible to the degree where we can't practice, at least those of us in this room. Um, But it's not super blissful, (laughs) um, at least if you have a body, right? And so it's actually considered the best realm for practice. And what we're being asked to see with these images, they're meant to tweak you a little bit and have you say, what do you mean I'm not seeing accurately? The Buddha says, actually, you're not really seeing quite accurately. And you can say, huh, and storm out of the room. <laughs> or we can sort of engage with that and see. Um, yeah. And I think we all discover through practice. Another thing about being human is that we're a little bit wise. You know, to be a human, you have to have pretty good merit. Um, it's, it's pretty good. And so we have ways in which we actually are seeing accurately. There are things about us that are already wise. Everybody has some degree of wisdom. Everybody has some degree of mindfulness, some degree of goodness, kindness. I totally believe that. It's, those things are never created um, from zero. They're existent in everyone. But there's also those ways in which we're not seeing, those ways in which we don't have wise speech, and we know it, right? And those ways in which we got fooled. Um, you know, something that we knew wasn't permanent was destroyed, and we got upset about it. Why? We knew it was impermanent, but we got caught. So when we see those things, we say, okay, there's something to these, to these teachings.
least that's the invitation. But I would love to keep talking about this. Yeah, does that help? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> well, we're just about out of time. The two hours go so fast. Um, so, uh, I have a sheet here. I'll pass it around. I'll just send it there and you can pass it on. Oh, sorry. It has a suggested um, homework for this week, like some reflections to do about the five aggregates. And I'm also going to send you an email with readings. Now that I have, I, I'll, I have your email from the Eightfold Path program, so I'll put you on. And there will also be some additional readings, which you will please bring to class next week. Um, so as we dive more deeply into um, what it means to cling to the aggregates next week. And I'll just give you a preview that we're going to look at aggregates, we're going to look at how we cling to them, we're going to look at how we construct a self, and we're going to look at how we get out, <laughs> how we um, find freedom. And, um, nope, those are, that's a preview of the four weeks. <laughs> those are the four weeks, so next week we'll look more carefully at what it means to, to get stuck. Yeah. All right, thank you everyone. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.